Welcome to Solving for B, your podcast for all things branding and marketing. In this episode, the Brand Extract team explores brand architecture. They break down what it is, why it's important to your brand, and why it's important to your company overall. They also delve into the various strategies for building brand architecture, looking at the pros and cons of each unique approach. So, settle in and enjoy this edition of Solving for B with Brand Extract. Hi, and welcome into Solving for B. I'm your host, Chris Wilkes, and I'm excited today to be joined by Director of Brand Strategy, Charity and Disengay. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Chairman, Jonathan Fisher. Hey, Chris. Always a pleasure. And CEO, Bo Bodie. What's up, Chris? Hey, guys. Thanks for joining <laughs> us today. Um, so today we're talking about brand architecture, what it is, why it's important, and how to get it right. Uh, so let's start by first defining the term brand architecture. What does that mean? What is a person referring to when they say brand architecture? So brand architecture is really how an organization clearly structures or organizes its different brands, its products or services. You can call it a happy marriage between your brand strategy and your product portfolio. The one thing that um, Jonathan was saying the last time we spoke about this was he referred to it as a family tree. And what was that example, Jonathan, you, you gave around how you use the surname? Well, I think a simple way to think about it is, uh, you know, when you get married, do you take on the spouse's last name versus do you have a hyphenated name or do you keep your name independent? And so in a very simple analogy, when you talk about different architectural models that are out there, and we'll go into those in a minute, I often use that as an example to help somebody visualize very quickly how architecture works. And there's a cost, there's a cost to each of those. Right. For those yeah. that are married. There is a cost <laughs> and a benefit to each of those yeah. things. Just live in, in sin together is common law and keep your name oh, separate. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I actually love the, that, you know, you, cause you guys were kind of explaining me uh, the, the difference between the different brand architectures and the approaches. And uh, the three main ones are branded house, house of brands, uh, endorsed brands, and then there's like hybrid approaches of those other kind of main ones. But maybe talk a little bit about the you know the differences, or or, or maybe describe each of those three. So if you talk about brand architecture, it's really a spectrum from left to right, for instance. So at the very left, you've got your branded house, which is a company like um, McKinsey, for instance, or Apple. It's a single brand um, for all of its operations. And on the far right, you have your house of brands, which is a company that opts for a holding company, um, which comprises of a series of unconnected brands, like your Procter & Gamble, for instance. So Procter & Gamble has brands under it like Pampers and Tide. Those aren't necessarily linked to the master brand. Um, Yum Foods is the same. So under Yum Foods, you've got KFC, you've got um, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and then in between, you've got this endorsed brand. And in, an example of an endorsed brand is like Nestle, Nescafe by Nestle. So it borrows from the mother brand, but isn't necessarily trading by the mother brand. An easy way to think about an endorsed brand is you often see both brand identities in proximity to each other, and in some cases, even in a direct lockup with each other, where they, they form yeah. a new symbol together. Um, you'll see it that way. Um, 
so that's some people have a hard time confusing, I think, endorsed brands with like hybrid brand model strategies. Mm-hmm. So I always try to say, think of that, that hyphenated uh, marriage name analogy that we threw out there as like yeah. an endorsed brand strategy. <laughs> Right. And I think it, it really becomes where the, I mean, it, I mean, sticking on the naming thing, you, you see this all the time with actors and actresses and, and oh, yeah. different people, you know, they're, they're benefer or whatever. I mean, there, there's <laughs> that thing that people try and do. Um, but at, at the end of the day, it really comes down to value. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in, in strategy and not just brand strategy, but corporate strategy, you know, yeah. is the value of this brand alone greater with endorsed by or is the value of this product better when it's brought up into that main brand you know that the branded house mm-hmm. um or is it better on its own and in some cases when you start talking about products shelf space goes into to, comes into mind different types of markets you're trying to go into thing mm-hmm. value differences between the products i've got a low end and a high end how do we handle them you know but it's the same thing you know it's the same thing when you go back to these you know actors and their partners or others you know that they they've built a brand in the marketplace and sometimes they take on a name sometimes they use it sometimes and sometimes they say, no, I'm going to keep my own name because Madonna is Madonna and nothing's going to change no matter how many times they get married. You know, I've got to keep that because this brand is, is its thing. It's got plenty of equity in it. Right. So, so you already kind of started touching on it about a little bit, but what are some considerations whenever you're deciding, um, deciding which architecture to take on and which one suits your, your company and your business most? Right. I mean, I think you have to think about where do you want value to end up? You know, because like we were talking about, there's a cost to having different names. Again, staying on the same theme, you know, when when you and your partner have different names, there's sometimes some confusion, right? Are you, you're married or you're not, depending upon the culture. Um, and so that confusion is something you have to work through. You know, if a product, depending upon kind of how you get into it, but if you're starting a company and let's call it Apple, you know, and they've got kind of this like one step to the to the right, or I can't remember if you went left to right or right to left there, but yeah, one step to the right, you know, where it's I've got I've got my eye products. So I've got Apple and then I've got mm-hmm. iProducts. There's there, but they're still all sold by Apple. The logo on the back of the thing is is the Apple logo. The 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 value goes up into the overall brand. You know, because that brand's built on innovation and they want the innovation to flow through into all the other products and vice versa. And some of that's stock price driven and some of that's just the way that the customer or consumer wants to handle the product. And some of it's just easy. How easy is this to say? You know, there's a point where, you know, it's an iPad and you go 8, 9, 10, 11 and you want to quit counting and it's just iPad new version. Yeah, there's that kind of thing that you've got to deal with. But the reason you would do that is is really kind of where do you want the value to live? And some of that's driven by your own corporate strategy and structure. And some of that's driven by the market that you're in or the type of product you place. Yes, certainly from a market perspective, it's also looking at what markets you want to play in. So where you want to play actually really matters. So if you're wanting to um, deliver your products in one market, then maybe a single strategy or single brand strategy is important. But if you want to be in multiple multiple markets, um, you might want to look at a different uh, strategy. 
because one brand in one place might not mean the same thing in another and it might not make sense in another. Um, clarity around the, the purposeful storytelling that you're wanting to tell. So clearly articulating value for your brand and what it delivers to your customers and employees and other stakeholders you'd want to take into account. And then, of course, culture. You know, you say nowadays we say brands are culture and culture is brand. So if your brand culture, your single product brand culture is stronger than your corporate culture, then you might want to use that brand as your lead brand as opposed to vice versa. But it also defines what your internal culture is. So Coca-Cola, for instance, they basically, um, that particular product, that group of individuals from an internal perspective, they gather around opening happiness and defining what happiness is and how that drives that culture. Whereas Fanta, for instance, is about sharing the fun. So everything and the, the culture of that specific business unit is driven by that. So it, 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 there are a few things to consider. Yeah. Risk and liability, you know, is another factor that can often mm-hmm. play, um, you know, with um, um, a, a branded house where all the brands are the same, also referred to as a master brand strategy. Yeah. Um, or a corporate brand strategy, you'll hear people toss out occasionally different terms that mean all the same thing here. Um, you know, if a major catastrophe happens and it affects the brand, it affects everything under the brand. In a house of brands where everything's disparate and separate for the most part, if mm-hmm. something happens, somebody dies, food poisoning, blows something up, whatever it might be with one of the brands or products or services, it only affects that brand and it doesn't affect all the other brands. Yeah. Um, so risk and liability strategies are often part of these conversations to both and charity's points about strategic and goals and objectives and markets. That's, that's one of the factors. Also long-term strategies such as spin outs, mm-hmm. you know, are you rolling up and absorbing? So we've worked with companies that have grown from 250 people to 5,000 people and absorbed, you know, 25 companies over the period of a decade. And, you know, what was their long-term vision and, and what were they going to be doing with the brands they're acquiring? We've also seen them go through restructures and then spin out and divest and sell off certain products or service lines. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you do a lot of work like we do in the middle market private equity groups that we work with to help them, to this point, figure out value. Um, sometimes you want a hybrid model because you intend to buy a service, absorb components of it, but then maybe sell off components of it yep. in a situation. And so... Yeah. The, you want that equity, that value to go with that brand when the buyer gets it. Therefore, they get a higher multiple, for example. Um, so there's a lot of considerations. Companies often start, particularly in the manufacturing space, with naming their product. Their product gets confused with the company. Then they add more products, and they're like, what do we do? And then they do more acquisitions, and they're like, oh, we need a holding company brand. And so you get backed into these strategies sometimes, too, if you aren't really yeah. careful and thoughtful and insightful about your vision and future. And that process. So really kind of working through those, again, strategic business goals, having a good, clear vision, thinking about the value and equity, thinking about the risk, thinking about the markets to charities points, how different, you know, uh, they are. And some buyers, uh, you know, they love one product and they hate another product and that company goes and the other product and then wants to convert it over. And they're like, no way, we're never going to, we're never going to buy the Apple. I know, you know, my daughter's a Samsung fan and she'll never use Apple. And, and so it doesn't matter what Apple comes out with. She's just never switching. <laughs> so, you know, so brand loyalty and equity as it exists today is also part of these strategies and these conversations that you have with clients. Yeah. That, you know, honestly, that's one of the weirdest things. Like when Apple bought Beats, 
you know, they wanted the technology, but they left the brand in the marketplace. And I think that's a place where Apple deviated from strategy. And I don't know, you know, we've done this before with some of our clients where like emotion gets valued greater than good business decision. (laughs) And so, you know, trying to make this person happy or this customer happy or this kind of thing, sometimes a legacy brand especially in those instances, can end up hanging on too long. And then there's, back to the point about cost, there's a cost to managing that brand, whether it's an equity piece or it's a just a pure, co- I got to run an ad for this and I got to run an ad for this. Um, yeah. There's that. At the end of the day, though, you know, if in that case you want some sort of audio technology and they, you know, do you roll those in? Well, no, this is a unique brand. I can use it. So even if you do have a branded house, there is a place, it's not truly a hybrid brand, but there is a place to say, to Jonathan's point and a little bit of what Charity was talking about, I need to let this hang out there for a while. And a while yeah. can be 10 years, three years, five years, yeah. as long yeah. as it's deliberate, you know, as it long is- as it's intentional and you've got a plan that you both have talked about, a plan for it long term so you don't spin um, yeah. because we see that sometimes. I think that that begs the the conversation for the need for flexibility as well around when you are picking your strategy, what strategy you take. In that instance, Apple made a very clear decision to be flexible around its its, pro, its process because it saw an opportunity to access a market that was a non-traditional uh, market yep. that was off the beaten cuff that could, they could make a significant amount of money with, with the brand like right. by Dre. And they could get inroads into a, a new market and new demo exactly. that it matters. So it was intentional, it, it, but it does, it does seem different mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're a certain way and something, then you have to market to that, which I think they yeah. did while they haven't been a huge advertiser and their advertising is very just emotional. You know, yeah. they did a good job with Dr. Dre and, and beats. Absolutely. Uh, of incorporating him and his brand into initial advertising and then over time transitioned that equity into the Apple brand and have left it in the market, but you don't see a lot of Beats commercials, you know? And so I think Charity, you you tagged onto something very, very, very important, which is, you know, you can use your brand architecture and then in turn strategy to tap into a new market or a new audience or a new demo or a new mm. product and not just corporate wise. I keep talking about the corporate stuff. Yes, yeah. they got some IP. Yes, they got some interesting stuff. Yes, their wireless technology got better, but they also got a whole new audience and they were able exactly. to youngify and change their brand um, yeah. in a way they probably couldn't have without that brand moving into it. True. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the story of equity, we've seen smaller brands be acquired by larger brands, but the larger brand has a horrible uh, amount of equity reputation. in the marketplace yeah. and reputation. And we've seen the smaller brand gobble the larger brand yeah. structure sometimes. Um, we've also seen brand strategies where there's very intentional good, better, best type situations mm-hmm. where you don't want your name associated with the weaker with the weaker entry-level product line. You know, and so you want to create separation, sort of church and state delineations there. Um, yeah. So you don't drag down the upper level brand echelons that you do have. So, you know, again, all goes back to conversations, research strategy and these decisions. But there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack when you're working with companies 
on these decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So it, are there any risks involved with specific approaches to others? I think Jonathan, you mentioned like the risk of a branded house is, you know, if, if you, if you take the branded house approach, one business unit or one segment of the brand has a misstep and it filters throughout. But is there, I mean, you guys are talking about a flexible approach. Is there, you know, is there, is there a risk in not being consistent in your approach? Is that, you know, are you going to confuse the marketplace perhaps? Yeah, there, there are um, different types of risk. So there's uh, legal liability type risk. There's brand mm-hmm. reputation risk. Um, there's cost risk. There's time to market risk. Um, you know, in a master brand, uh, our branded house solution, it's, it's, it's much faster to bring a product to market. There's less risk. The equity is already there. It's known associated, right? In a house of brands, it's, it's, there's a lot more risk bringing an unknown product to market. Um, costs, time to market, and all that are part of that risk risk equation to it. Uh, there are pros and cons with every single strategy that's out there. There is no guaranteed single right solution, perfect all the time for anybody. Um, so there are risks, but the, you know the risks generally are associated with cost and time and liability um, for that most part. Um, speed of adoption, you know, th- those types of things. Um, those are the big categories of risk that we see most often in this. I think there is the unspoken risk of culture um, that you have to also consider. Um, there is an emotional attachment to brands. Uh, think about brands that were the public was told they're going to be sunsetted, and then they're like, "No!" Yeah. <laughs> and they, they rush out and buy them. I think it was like the the, the Twinkies, you know, thing, or <laughs> Little Debbies, or something with sunsetted, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, but there's also just that cultural risk, especially with like mergers and acquisitions. You know, um, Continental Airlines, United, big big risk. You know, Continental was not perceived, and culturally, one way versus United's cultural perceptions of these organizations. And so you have to also consider sort of the cultural and emotional attachments of people truly letting go of these brands and adopting the new brand in that process or creating the reason to switch or evaluate a reason to switch at that time. Mm -hmm. And that's another risk that people don't often think about is when you change something, it can be a trigger point for somebody to go out and shop you. It can also be a trigger point for somebody to investigate you and buy you, right? <laughs> so there is a retention conversation that should be considered in this process um, mm-hmm. as well. And, uh, and I think when you talk to culture, you need to think beyond just your customers. It's your internal stakeholder too. So absolutely, the opportunity cost there could be losing valued employees. Yeah, yeah. No, that, I mean, that's, you know, one thing that I think, you know, was enlightening to me when we we're talking about this previously was that, you know, there is, and I don't even, I don't know if it qualifies necessarily as a risk, but um, there's more of a heavy lift if you go with, for example, a house of brands, because you're having to maintain a lot of visual assets and, and different language, you know, all these different things, as opposed to if you're under a uh, branded house, model, then, you know, the brand, like you guys touched on is, is kind of set and everything kind of flows off of that. That goes all the way. I think that goes all the way from a, from an investor standpoint, all the way down to the customer. 
So if you across all your stakeholders, even even we're dealing with that with a couple of our clients right now, where you know there there've been a bunch of acquisitions, and you know this company doesn't even know they're a part of this company or a part of the big company, you know, and so to charity's point, there's a lot of confusion with your internal audience, which then they don't understand the full scope and scale of the value they provide. Um, from a from a corporate or investor standpoint, you've got to be really clear on, you know, where's the value in all of these brands and how does that flow through to my investment in the one entity, right? And, and then that needs to tell the shareholder, oh, man, look at the value of all these products and I understand how they work together and I understand what they do. And so the perceived value of product and company goes up. And so thus the value of the multiple and the value of the stock goes up on top of the fundamentals and whether they're a well-run company and a financial, all you financial and engineering people, I get that. But you know, <laughs> there's that part of it. You know, Then there's the internal piece that Charity was talking about where do I work do I, do I, do I work for Procter and Gamble or do I work for like, am I, does this make sense to me? And that stuff matters. I mean, it may be in the back of somebody's head. And to Jonathan's point, if product, if I know that all these products are tied together and product A behaves badly in the marketplace, but B, C, D, and E and corporate parent are fine. You know, that still affects me in today's world with communication that still has an impact, which then turns into the customer value. I think then there's the traditional, you know, and Charity touched on this earlier, the, to, like, I got to have multiple product managers and multiple brand managers and multiple agencies and multiple markets and multiple things. And th just the complexity of it gets really high. Um, and that's the challenge, right? And that doesn't mean it can't be overcome. Companies, good companies overcome that all the time and they do it efficiently and effectively. Um, but that is when you're making that choice to be a house of brands, that is a byproduct of that. Multiple websites, multiple advertising campaigns, multiple partners, multiple perceptions in the marketplace, multiple kinds of risks, multiple ways that you can express yourself to an investor. And so that just has to be deliberate, I think, um, yes. when you're thinking about kind of the complexity of these different kind of strategies. So what does this process look like, right? When you're, when you're trying to determine whether... Uh, a house of brands or a branded house or a endorsed brands approach or hybrid approach. We are trying to decide which one suits your company and your collection of brands, let's call it. Um, what suits you best? What does that process look like? Where do you start? What are the things that, that you kind of look at and consider? Well, I think for me, the one thing that I would recommend is starting off with your mission, vision, values, um, and understanding what is it that we're doing as an organization, what is our singular mission. Once you have decided what your mission is, then you, or once you're clear on what those are, you start evaluating the products and the services that you have against those mission, uh, that mission, what that mission, vision, and values. Sorry. Um, and then you need to ask yourself a few questions. So, for instance, how are these brands actually performing against this master brand, um, and how are they? How are they performing in terms of the goals of the master brand, or the overall master brand? How does the market perceive these brands? Does the perception align with where we're going from an MVV perspective? Um, are the brands clashing in terms of brand portfolio and um, the position within the market? And then start asking yourself very hard questions around, okay, if that is the case and they aren't aligning, do we need to pull them up into a brand 
call them separately into a separate sub-brand um, or review our entire portfolio altogether. I think it starts off with being clear on what your MVV is, and then you can make clear decisions on each of your products and offerings. I would add to that that when we do a brand assessment, which is kind of our umbrella term that we would throw out there when talking with a client about this, that we look at it from the business strategy to charities points and from the market's perceptions of the brands themselves. So it's really kind of a SWOT analysis that you go through and do against all these questions that the charity threw out there. So you want to look at the strengths and weaknesses, both from internal and external and competitive. Mm-hmm. So I always use the analogy of a three-legged stool um, because you can have something that's great, but it may not be hyper-relevant or hyper-differentiated in the marketplace mm-hmm. in that process. And so that brand positioning to Charity's points about really setting your sights on those alignments, you look at it from these different lenses. Um, and so, you know, is it the thing that's drawing the, the highest need and want and are we positioning it the right way? Is it uh, differentiated enough? And is it our true core competency or strength in what we're delivering? Or is it just an ancillary, secondary value-added type service that we've thrown in there and just created because somebody started buying it? Mm-hmm. You know, I see see variable services and products all the time generated. Just because if you're a manufacturer and you love to invent, you constantly manufacture, but that's not necessarily the smartest strategy out there right. <laughs> you know, um, yep. for that process. Um, or an engineer and you love to you know recreate whatever it is. So. I would, I would always stipulate that you want to look at it from those perspectives and then think of it as a Venn diagram where they, where they are truly align in the center is the strongest positions that you can pick and strategies that you can pick for that conversation. It's a s- simple visual to use. Yeah, yeah. Fisher, Fisher got both. I just want to note that Fisher got both the three-legged stool and the Venn diagram into the podcast <laughs> at the same time <laughs> in the same thought. So I, I think... I think, but but Jonathan, but both Charity and Jonathan are right. There's this balance between your corporate strategy and intention, the audiences that you work with, and then the culture that you want to you want to build or the brand perception that you want to put out in the marketplace. The, the the product matters. You know, beat going back to the Beats example, Beats changed the demographic of Apple in a certain way, right? And that was intentional. You know, it may have they may have gotten different kinds of benefits than they thought, but the intention is what matters. And so you I think you have to look at these different pieces, not just from a financial standpoint. Is this brand gonna add a certain amount to the bottom line? Can I grow it? Does it make sense? But coming back to the cultural piece, especially if you've got an established culture, does this product fit? Is the way the product's built and developed? Is how it makes money, is the audience that it reaches out to, is, you know, are those all things that add back and can easily be connected to your brand? You know, we see this in the B2B space all the time where a company in X city buys another company in Y city and the brand in Y city, the brand in X city isn't known in the brand in Y city. So they say, well, let's just leave the brand in Y city out there because nobody's going to know who this new brand is and we'll, we'll lose market share if we change the name or we do whatever. Sometimes people don't think of like, but no, if you're looking at overall brand value of your entity, you've got to end up changing that name or do you, you know? And I think that there, there's that piece that's, that's a cultural driver. There's a strategic driver 
And then there is a driver by your different audiences, you know, and what they expect from that product or service or your overall product or service um, that should be considered and very thoughtfully to Jonathan's point about SWAT. You know, sometimes we see the finances make sense and somebody goes and buys something, but man, their audience is completely different and they didn't think about it. Or man, the way they make money or price things is really different and they didn't think about it. Or they just strip the name off then they don't think about the regional implications, you know, or the cultural implications with doing it. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we brand one or more companies on average or products or services a month and have for nearly two decades. And so we have these conversations every month. I had three of them this month with companies that were merging, companies that were rolling up, companies that were adding new products. Like this was a conversation with the CEO, with the CFO, with the VP and CMOs, we have these conversations all the time about what are the right architecture structures and approaches. And you have to drill down into this kind of SWAT. It's, it's, it's almost like management consulting and not marketing at the start of these projects because so much is affected by sunsetting a brand or changing a manufacturing line or dealing with the legal requirements of trademarking mm-hmm. something um, that these have huge impacts, but mm-hmm. constantly we see companies that just ran out to Bo's point and bought something that thought it could just fold in. It made sense. <laughs> it made sense to the consultants on the ground at the time who were just number crunchers and you know doing the. <laughs> but it made no sense from a brand marketing standpoint. It's shocking to us, surprisingly, but also not at the same time because we've done it for so many years. How little attention is paid to these kinds of conversations during these acquisitions and spinouts and rollups and and launches. It's it's surprising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cool. So <clears throat> I'm going to close with this. I'm going to put you guys on the spot here a little bit. So what's one piece of advice and, and anybody can jump in first, but what's one piece of advice you'd give to a company that's, that's going through this process considering their brand architecture. If you had to pick just one piece or the most important thing to focus on, um, what would that be? Mine, mine would be understand fully where you want value to live or where you need value to live. Um, I think I think that's one question that I don't read in a lot of textbooks and I don't see a lot of conversation around. Um, but, you know, and everything we've talked about, risk, confusion, culture, you know, values, all that stuff goes into that. Um, yeah. But in some of that depends on market. You know, we come to it from a B2B, we use some B2C examples today, but from a B2B standpoint, it's even harder because you you make assumptions that somebody knows brand X in this marketplace for this, or, you know, or we don't, corporate doesn't matter and branding and logo and all that stuff doesn't matter. People just buy our product. Well, you're commoditizing yourself at that point. So if you're not deliberate, at least having the conversation about where the value is going to live at the end of the day and what your intention is with that value you're missing a big part of the conversation. You're not even, you're not even to Jonathan's point, there's not even a stool in the room. Um, Cause you're just going to, you're just going to sit and fall on the ground. Cause you'll have to figure it up at some point, figure it out at some yeah. point. I think that that's something, if you're really smart about it at the beginning and deliberate about your hypothesis about where you want value to live, I, I think you will be more successful in whatever you execute uh, moving forward. Great. Charity. 
I would just add on to what those said around um, being deliberate. So if you are able to be deliberate, you are able to consistently position your brand or deliver your, your brand um, consistently. And that boosts sales. It's been said to over by over 33%. Brands with a clear architecture are three times more visible and are clear on how they can be consistently presented. It's absolutely imperative that you are deliberate around those choices that you make because of that. Awesome. Jonathan. I would say do your homework from the internal, external, and competitive perspectives and not just the financials (laughs) as it relates to the brands. And I would encourage you to use a third party when doing it because customers will not be honest with you if you try to do it yourself or prospects or lost customers or whatever it might be. And and Um, I think to build on that, Jonathan, you won't be honest with yourself. You'll think you, you, yeah, you have a chance to, yeah, there, there's frequently the, what we call the rose colored glasses (laughs) effect. (laughs) My, my baby is beautiful when it's not (laughs) necessarily. Um, It really helps companies evaluate these conversations when there is a third party in the room that is Mm -hmm. objective and neutral and unbiased because the brand product managers will tell you one thing because they want to protect their territory or their products, their, their fiefdoms, their budgets, whatever it might be. And the numbers guys will tell you another thing because they just think they can lop something off or trim something out and they have no sense of the equity or the, or the value adds that it brings yeah. to the other financial products where it may be a true loss revenue thing, but it's the one thing that drove all the other sales. Mm-hmm. So bring, bring the brand people into these conversations. Look at it from that three-legged stool, that Venn diagram analogy, and then you've got a true 360 of data that you can put the value and the strategies together that, that Charity and Bo have discussed. Awesome. There's 360, Chris. Got it all oh, yeah. in there. <laughs> We're on that one. Loop it all back around. Well, look, guys, this has been really helpful and really insightful. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Um, so we'll let you go, but, uh, but thanks a lot. Thanks, Chris. Thanks Good so job, much, guys. Chris. Bye, yeah. Chris. Bye now. That's it for this edition of Solving for B. If you enjoyed the episode, check out brandextract.com for more content on all things branding and marketing. Be sure to also follow us on our social channels like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in to Solving for B.